0: This is the original audio from the event. Speaker remarks were in Spanish and English. This version does not include interpretation. Versions with Spanish and English interpretation will be available online next week. Thank you. Good morning, buenos dias. Welcome everybody, good to have you with us. Um, We appreciate you joining us at the Migration Policy Institute. I'm Andrew Seeley, I'm the president of Migration Policy Institute. And um, we have a great discussion over the next 75 minutes on a topic of importance uh, to all of us, which is building effective migration management capacity in Mexico and Central America. Um, It is no secret that there is a large flow of people at the moment between Central America passing through Mexico on their way to the United States. Um, But this is obviously a sign, this has happened many times in the past, and it's a sign of larger issues that are at play in the hemisphere and in the broader region that comprises the area, at least from the United States to Panama. But but I like to think of it often as, as I often say Canada to Costa Rica, because it, it sounds, alliterates well, but it really is Canada to Panama. This region that people move in and they move north and they move south, Nicaraguans tend to go south. We're seeing people from the Northern triangle headed to Costa Rica and Panama as well. And certainly people move north, right, within this region. Um, We do a lot of work at MPI looking at the capacity of the U.S. government and how the U.S. government should be managing migration. Um, Doris Meisner, our colleague, is uh, leading an effort with Julia Gillette called Rethinking U.S. Immigration Policy, which has looked at any number of issues about how to manage the asylum system, to how to rethink detention policies, to what to do with the immigration courts. and how to manage the border more broadly. And you've seen many of those pieces. We'll have something coming out soon on, on institutional structure within the U.S. government as well. Um, today is an opportunity to look at Mexico and Central America, the countries in Mexico and Central America. Um, we have put together a report under the leadership of Ariel Ruiz and Andrea Tanco, who you'll hear from in a moment. Um, Luis Argueta, our wonderful colleague in, in Guatemala. Um, Luis is a co-author on this and a great researcher, also a filmmaker. Many of you may know his name from that. And our colleague Jessica Bolter, who many of you know as well, who works on both the U.S. and Latin America. Um, We are uh, today. We are going to be talking about uh, capacities for managing migration, including humanitarian protection, in Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, and Panama. Um, We did a study over the past uh, two years, uh, looking, and particularly in the last year, very intensively, um, speaking with over seventy-five people um, in all of these countries, looking at including some of those present here, by the way. Um, Looking at uh, at the management capacities for dealing with migration in each of these countries, our assumption is that there is a shared responsibility in managing migration, which goes from certainly the United States to Panama and and perhaps from Canada to Panama. um, And that we need to be thinking about how this is distributed, how this is managed in each country in its own way, according to its own abilities and its own policies but in a way that's also coordinated among countries. So this report that is being released today and that Andrea and and Ariel will talk about in a minute, um, does a detailed look at at capacities. And it's actually structured with a piece on Mexico, a piece on Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And then there's a section that looks at at Costa Rica and Panama, and then tries to draw some lessons across the countries. So I'm not gonna steal Ariel and Andrea's thunder on this, um, but they will speak in a moment. And then after that, we have a phenomenal panel and I'll introduce the panel when we get to them. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to their reactions and their thoughts on this um, as people who work on these issues every day and know this know this intimately. Um, let me start off by thanking also the BTI Institute at uh, the University of Houston for their support. Um, thank you to Kurt Behrens and his team and everyone at uh, BTI H- University of Houston. Um, we really appreciate the opportunity to work with you. Thank you to the DHS policy team um, you know, particularly Michael Houston, but also to to everyone else on the on the Latin American policy team, David Chloe and Alejandro and uh, Morgan, and I'm forgetting lots of people. Sam and everyone on that team, we've had a chance to talk with, and thank you to the more than 75 people that we interviewed, who were fundamental for this. Um, And I should also say, because I think they're with us today, um, the Tinker Foundation, Open Society Foundations have been incredibly helpful as partners also in in making sure that we can do broader work around regional migration. And we really appreciate that. You will be seeing a lot more from from us on regional migration issues and how we think about migration, not just as a border issue, but as a regional issue that needs to be managed among the countries that are affected by this. So with that, a couple of housekeeping things before I introduce Speakers, um, you are. Uh, if you uh, want to ask questions, we will have time for QA at the end. You can send any questions to events at migrationpolicy.org, although, even easier, there is a Q&A function and a chat function you can go into. Use either one of those. You can um, also tweet at us at hashtag migrationpolicy. Um, and uh, if you have any logistical problems, you can also call us at 202 266. 1929, and that Lisa Dixon, who is our fabulous colleague that has organized today's event with us. Um, Spanish and English interpretation is available. Um, I can't actually remember where that is, but if you just look around your screen, you will find the interpretation function. I will say this in Spanish as well. Hay interpretación simultánea. Uh, hay una función que no sé dónde, exactamente dónde está, pero está en su pantalla, que lo pueden ver, uh, donde puede accesar la interpretación si, si no se está hablando en el idioma que, que usted prefiere. Um, We will have interventions that are in both Spanish and English today, so if you are not fluent in both languages know where the interpretation function is because the conversation can quickly shift um, from Spanish to English or English to Spanish. Um, With that, uh, we we hope you will enjoy the report. which really is, is quite detailed, and, and, but also has a great executive summary that you can, you can read and get most of the basic information and the conclusions or workbook campus as well. Um, and let me turn it over to talk about this to Ariel Ruiz, um, policy analyst, and Andrea Tanco, associate policy analyst at Migration Policy Institute. Ariel is the coordinator of our regional migration work at MPI and much published on these issues. Andrea Tanco is about to come out with a publication on Mexico's migration policies as well with Ariel um, and has worked on both Latin America and the Middle East uh, during her career. And let me turn over first of all to Andrea.
1: Thank you, Andrew. And thank you everyone that is joining us today. So recent developments at the US-Mexico border, I think highlight the important role that Mexico has to play with managing migration in the region. But besides looking for the benefit of regional partners, there is um, a stake for Mexico to manage migration for its own good. Mexico is currently undergoing a historic transformation from an emigrant sending country to a primary destination for refugees and migrants as well. So today, what I want to focus my presentation on is providing a brief overview of how these migration flows in Mexico have changed in recent years And then highlight the policy developments that have have come as a result of these changes in migration and assess their implications when it comes to speaking about migration management capacities. Um, Next slide, please. So traditionally known as an immigrant sending country, in recent years, Mexico has become a transit and destination country for migrants and refugees. A combination of demographic change, as well as restrictive U.S. immigration policies, have contributed to the evolution of Mexico as a primary destination. Since 2014 to 2020, Mexico has received around 177,000 asylum applications, 63% of which have been submitted only in 2019 and 2020. This rising trend has well continued into 2021, and just last month we saw a monthly historic high of 9,000 asylum applications submitted in Mexico. So, asylum seekers are primarily from Central American countries, mainly from Honduras, followed by El Salvador. But we've also seen the rise of asylum seekers coming from Venezuela, Cuba, and Haiti. In addition. We've also seen the rise of the so-called extracontinental migration. These are migrants that are coming from countries in Africa and Asia. And to add to this mix, since 2015, Mexico is receiving around 200,000 Mexican returnees from the US. So the bottom line is that Mexico's migration landscape is becoming more complex and diverse and the immigrant and refugee population is growing. Although its overall share is still It's very low compared to the overall population, around 1%. Next slide, please. Here you can see how the composition of these migrant apprehensions has changed, with highlight changes on the flows. So, in reaction to the increase of irregular and mixed migration flows in Mexico, the Lopez Obrador administration has modified Mexico's legal framework on migration, as well as enacted policies that have shifted the institutional landscape, restructuring interinstitutional coordination and directly affected the way that the two main institutions in charge of migration management this is the Institute National for Migration and Mexico's Refugee Agency Comar operate and their capacity and operations have been strengthened by auxiliary organizations mainly the National Guard as well as the national uh, as well as the national system of welfare which is known by as DIF So with that, I want to highlight the policy developments that have happened in the last um, three years. So at the highest policy level, um, a 2019 executive decree shifted primary oversight on migration policy management from the Ministry of Interior to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Initially, this was supposed to facilitate bilateral engagement with the US as tension arose from the increase in irregular migration. But the impact cannot be understated Domestically and on the ground, on the ground, this policy leadership change has added to the confusion over how migration policy is actually formulated, and what is the standard process of doing so. This vacuum of leadership has translated to disjointed and ad hoc policies from different government entities when external pressures have arise leaving also local and state governments at bay to address the needs of migrants and refugees but absent of any government support is really the civil society shelters who are at the front lines addressing the needs of migrants refugees and mexican returnees. beyond fragmented policy making the core institutions that oversee the implementation of migration policy face significant challenge so despite Different efforts for, of the government to modernize um, INAMI and invest in agent, agents' technical training, the institute continues to have capacity limitations, especially when it comes to staffing and ca- processing capabilities, affecting the quality that, of the services that it's meant to provide. In addition to capacity constraints, corruption and allegations over human rights abuses continue to be a central issue of the agency. Probably one of the most significant developments that we saw in recent years, especially in June 2019, was the deployment of the National Guard. And while while the deployment of the National Guard was supposed to free some of the agent's capacity, since its involvement, allegations of human rights abuses have actually increased. This is hopefully an issue that we can also discuss later on during the discussion and Q&A portion. On the humanitarian protection landscape, Comar, through the critical support of the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees has increased its geographical presence and improved the quality of its service. The Mexican government has also been raising the agency's um, budget. However, two main challenges remain. One, in the short term is addressing the procedural bottlenecks because the system is quite saturated and there's a big delay on resolution of cases. However, the longer term challenge is how to develop a, a sustainable strategy to strengthen the institution as over-reliance on UNHCR and other international actors is really not sustainable, not does it make the organization resilient in the short term. This will be particularly important as COMAR expands its mandates and its functions. The last point that I want to make before passing on to Ariel is the talk about the series of reforms that have been implemented, that have started being implemented earlier this year. Next slide, please. Perhaps no other recent example demonstrates more clearly the capacity gaps in Mexico's migration system than the implementation of the 2020 reforms to provide shelter and protection for migrant children and their families rather than to detainment. As the, as the um, um, reform state, once Inam encounters migrant children, this must be, the agency needs to immediately notify the branch of the federal prosecutor's office for the protection of children and adolescent, and then channel not only migra- minor, minors, but their adult companions to the DIF until the prosecutor's office determines what is in the best interest of the child. Although these reforms are still implemented Early signs suggest there is a dearth of, con- of coordination among state and local representatives of the prosecutor's office, DIF, and INAMI delegates at the state and local level. More broadly, DIF's institutional design and financial structure vis a vis state and local branches raise serious questions about the agency's capacity to carry out the implementation of these reforms. Finally, Besides the operational and capacity holders, there are also major procedural gaps that remain unresolved. What are the security protocols, for example, to, to verify the family bond between the adult companion and the manor? Or what are the security protocols before migrant children and their families going to a thief shelter? So with the next slide, I would like to conclude my intervention. And I would just like to mention that, despite the efforts of the government to reduce pressures in Mexico's migration system and expand some of the capacities. The reactive nature of these policies raises serious questions about the capacity of the government to promote safe, legal, and orderly migration. A mix of forward-looking reforms and other policies have resulted in a patchwork of overlapping mandates that prioritize coordination over sustainable institutional capacity building. The lack of long-term sustainable offers to strengthen the institution really threaten that role that Mexico can play more regional and it's for its own domestic role. So its success in seizing this opportunity will largely depend on its ability to systematize migration policy making efforts and to develop robust and resilient institutions that can make the overall migration system more sustainable. So with that, I know that it has been a lot to cover in Mexico, but I would like to pass it on to my colleague Ariel Ruiz, so he can talk about the challenges and opportunities in Central America.
2: Thank you, um, Andrea, and thank you again, all of you, for joining us. Uh, We do, this report is, as Andrew suggested, a bigger piece or a small piece of a bigger strategy that we're beginning to look into migration from Central America, but really regionally, what's being developed in terms of capacities for each of these governments. And while we cannot cover everything today, we want to make sure, at least for these three countries that I wanna talk about, we wanna make sure that you um, are aware of some of the key findings that we have here. So right away to jump in, the way to classify sort of the capacity that we've seen in Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador, is that predominantly there are emerging institutions and uh, still needs for critical partnerships. You've uh, may, as Andrew suggested in the beginning, you uh, have seen likely that there has been an increase in Central American migration recently, not just this year, but also in previous years. And what this graph shows you, uh, just as a small recap, is that beginning in 2014, the share of Central American migrants has begun to increase across the apprehensions that we've seen at the US-Mexico border. At the same time, in the smaller gray circle or the gray squares, you can see that there has been also a smaller but significant increase in migrants from other countries that are not Mexico or Central America in this case. And what this is gonna compel us to think about is how each of these countries, including Mexico and also Costa Rica and Panama, are actually dealing with having newer migration flows that are tend to be more and more mixed. Um, We don't have the data here for 2021, fiscal year that we've seen so far, but surely you can see, and you may have heard in reports recently of how the numbers continue to be increasing, especially among children and unaccompanied children and families. So this is why it's important for us to begin to think and reassess how we engage in the United States, but also regionally about and how to uh, address these issues together in a sense of co-responsibility. what we have found under our description or under investigation of the capacity in Central America is that there is significant, there has been significant changes in some regards, and they tend to be across all countries, though they have uh, different approaches. Some of the advances that we've seen notably have been in increased investment in funding, but also an attention to create either new policies or institutions, and also to reform how they protect and provide um, different means for migration in these countries. But overall, we still find that the, the Central American governments and the, the positions for regional migration um, tend to be in the emerging stage given their current management structure. We have found that policy-making systems are not yet fully built out and that they tend to change in circumstances or as the circumstances shift, as, uh, as uh, Andrea mentioned with a reactionary tone. Migration institutes and agencies that are available oftentimes are uh, weakly institutionalized, and only some of them, not all of them, have begun to think about labor mobility pathways. Enforcement continues to be the main piece of, I guess, increased capacity, uh, not only uh, recently with the migrant uh, uh, increased flows that we've seen at the us Mexico border, but also previously with the caravans that we've heard a lot about. Um, and at the same time, we haven't seen the same sort of increase in capacity on asylum systems, which is something that we've looked into together. A key component that MPI has also been for us to look at reception and reintegration flows to uh, these countries back from the United States and Mexico. And what we have found so far in those institutions is that the structure still thinks to be focused on reception and has not yet fully developed uh, undergirding um, mechanisms to provide reintegration for the different uh, populations that return to these countries. In the end, we also also see that, uh, like in Mexico, that there still needs to be more coordination um, in the governments and with the governments, and that more recently, international organizations have stepped up and provided a significant role here for those uh, those types of uh, engagements, which are continuing to be important. I'll talk about very briefly in terms of the overall structure of enforcement and each of the key pillars that I mentioned at each of these countries. Uh, Just to give you a sense of what that uh, capacity has looked like, again, with some additional detail in a report. The first thing to note is that in El Salvador, the predominant or primary migration management uh, agency is the General Directorate of Migration and Immigration. And their focus has uh, been under the Ministry of Justice and Public Security, Security, and it has a focus on enforcement. Uh, The enforcement branch of it is conducted in El Salvador by actually the Border Patrol Uh, units that they've recently created. Uh, They're focused only uh, or more predominantly on border crossings and they have and work together with the border police. In this case actually El Salvador is one country that has actually developed a more streamlined uh, unit of migration management and enforcement compared to their countries that rely on national police and some military forces. In Honduras the predominant or primary agency for migration management is under the National Institute of Migration. It was established in 2014 and the enforcement capacities are implemented by the National Interinstitutional Force for Security known as FUSINA, which is actually comprised of members, uh, member units from the national police, the army attorney general's office and also intelligence offices across other departments. Um, in Guatemala, the primary agency is the Guatemalan National Migration Institute, and it has been developed more recently, perhaps uh, is the likely the case where it's, it's the one institution that needs to be developed more fully, as we'll talk about later, but their enforcement has been branched off by the national police and essentially some military units for enforcement more recently, especially during the recent arrival of caravans that we've seen uh, been contained in Guatemala before coming to the, to Mexico and the United States. In terms of asylum and humanitarian protection, there has been some advancements that are worth mentioning, um, including that again, this the, all the countries have uh, begun to pay more attention to what protection systems they have for their own nationals returning, but also for internally displaced people within their countries. Um, you, you likely uh, remember during the Trump administration, the United States uh, signed agreements with the three countries who provide asylum cooperation, known as ACAs. These were terminated in February of this year and was only implemented in Guatemala, uh, which was then paused in March 2020 because of the current and ongoing COVID pandemic. In addition to that, the international and civil society support continues to be the predominant way to provide protection for migrants and displaced people in the countries. And it's focusing not only in, in in more macro level approaches to the current me- mechanisms that they have, but also creating some other ones, including for example, the protection transfer agreements uh, that are now providing and allowing some of the people that are that face the greatest risk uh, to have some way to uh, relocate uh, and resettle in different countries. The numbers continue to be small, but it is a promising practice. We think there's another promising practice that we have found and that includes uh, NGOs like Cristosal that provide internally displaced programs or programs for internally displaced people, allowing to give them and find protection mechanisms that were available within their country to try to ameliorate and uh, reduce the need for people to immigrate internationally. These are important to note because there are some of the key components that we have seen. Um, in reality, the ongoing actual government structure provided for asylum systems is still developing. And though there has been improvements, for example, in Guatemala, there has been a creation of the Department for Recognition of Refugee Status, working very closely with the uh, National Refugee Commission, essentially the Comar of Guatemala, it hasn't yet fully developed and there's still some uh, questions about how it processes cases and the ability to do it more quickly. El Salvador doesn't have a a, a similar structure, but they have passed a special law to protect victims of forced displacement. We think this is an encouraging uh, possibility, though we still are waiting to see some of the key components to implement these policies and how to work with other organizations already doing some of the similar work. In Honduras, there has been contemplations and arguments and conversations uh, in their Congress to understand and coordinate similar laws, but at this time, or at the time that we looked at this, we hadn't seen yet anything uh, materialized. Legal pathways and employment are also really important to our approach at MPI because they provide a different way for people to, to, who need to travel to seek better economic engagement and opportunities to do so legally and do it uh, not just to the United States, but potentially to their countries. We saw there was some increasing capacity uh, triggered by the US agreements to increase uh, temporary seasonal pathways. Um, including predominantly the H-2A program, it's a visa that allows predominantly for agricultural work, as well as the H-2B program that the that previously the U.S. government has suggested. These were actually pa- part of the agreements that the United States presented when they presented the ACS, ACAS as well. And we continue to wait to see what they would look like. Um, of course. Uh, the efforts to attract US employers have also continued in some of these countries, including El Salvador, which has begun to work with the, for example, the United States Department of Labor to understand what some of the potential possibilities for collaboration could be. And in Guatemala, one of the key components that we've looked at as well that's promising is they're also thinking and working with, with the Mexican government to understand how to make a more efficient and easier way for Guatemalan workers to potentially work not only in Southern Mexico, but also in other parts of Mexico. Return and integration is the last component that I'll touch about for now, but it is also very important given that a lot of what's happened recently has continued to provide return migration for return migrants uh, to these countries, specifically under COVID restrictions. And the agencies in charge of this capacity are, for example, in El Salvador, the National Council of the Protection of Development for Migrants and Families, or COMIGrantes, and they are the ones responsible to develop policies to take uh, and provide opportunities for these migrants. Most of the work in El Salvador is with reception and a little bit less with reintegration, but we do believe that it's an important component. In Guatemala, you have the National Council for Migrant Affairs or CONAMIWA, which has a similar agenda, though its focus is more for uh, immigrants abroad, um, especially in the United States. And we began, we have begun to see that there has been an increase in interest and investment in the capacity to oversee returnee processing but also provide some some basic reception services and promote channeling to other reintegration services available. In Honduras, there hasn't been something yet similar by institution, but they do have a law for protection of Honduran migrants and their families, similar to in El Salvador. Um, And the key components here actually implemented through different offices, the Center for Return Migrant Care, for example, the Centers for Adolescent and Family Migrants, who both provide um, essentially reception services and the municipal units for returnee care or UMARS, which are tend to be more in the territories and the destinations and are, are geared at least in their functions to be more about reintegration functions rather than reception. But still, what we found, like we did it before in previous studies, is that most of the integration measures and services continue to rely predominantly on NGOs and international organizations like IOM, but also others that would actually allow them to actually stay in the country or find a different way for them to have uh, proper and, li- and more prosperous livelihoods in their countries. Coordination and cooperation uh, is significantly important here. And as I mentioned at the beginning, it's a place where it's continued to be lacking. But there has been some advances specifically um, uh, coordinated by international organizations like uh, ACNUD or UNHCR, IOM, and the United Nations more generally that have actually led to some of the key components here. I won't go into talk about the, 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 all the different meetings and types of mechanisms that exist, but just point out that there is a significant opportunity here for Mexico and the United States to begin to harmonize their investment plans, for example, with the Comprehensive Development Plan in Mexico and for the US Engagement Strategy in for Central America in the United States so that there could be a significant component and cooperation to amplify the results of these initiatives. So I'll just say a short word about Costa Rica and Panama. We also look at them, and I commend for you to look at the, that section in our report. In Panama and Costa Rica, what we see is an institutional sort of contrast. Costa Rica, for example, is one of the most has one of the most sophisticated humanitarian institutions in the region, as uh, compared to Panama, which had some institutions, but it's now in the process of rebuilding them and will take some time to get back to that uh, previous uh, sort of level of capacity. Um, both countries are important because they face significant and increasing transit uh, migrants, including uh, some from other parts of the world and other parts of the hemisphere. That are important to note. Uh, the humanitarian protection role, that specifically that Costa Rica plays, is significantly important, and in fact has been well, very well developed in the past. But the problem here is that they continue to be overwhelmed, not only because of resources, but also because of some institutional capacities. They are continuing to build. Um, So again, both in this regional approach, while we won't talk about them much here, it is important to include both both Costa Rica and Panama in this regional approach, not only because of their geographical location, but also because of the experiences that they have and could provide and benefit for best learned practices. The last thing that I'll say before passing it over to our panelists and and others um, is to focus on the key recommendations or policies that we think are opportunities for the region, especially in such an important time. The first is that Mexico and Central America could do more uh, with with partnership in the international organizations, of course, to develop more clear policy making and decision making processes to ensure that there's a clear process of of collaboration across the region. Two, that certainly enforcement is going to continue to be a central piece of the work that the region does to try to manage migration. But it has to be professionalized and it has to be done in a way with oversight and provide Uh, by the rule rule of law of each of these countries. Third is that there has to be continued investments in government asylum systems. And again, there has been some improvements, but much still needs to happen. And most of this role uh, uh, for asylum has actually been relied by UNHCR in some of these countries like Mexico. Uh, Four is the development for greater capacity for managing legal migration. Again, this is only beginning and it's really mostly focused in Guatemala at the moment but we hope that that continues to expand and finally we need to continue to invest in uh, further return and reintegration programs so for that and for the sake of time i will leave it there and i'll pass it back to um, andrew and to begin to conversation with our panelists thank you
0: thank you ariel and thank you andrea that was great um thanks for for providing an overview of the report we're going to go to our panel you know just to to follow on what ariel said you know, enforcement is an important part of you know all countries enforce their borders, their migration systems. But as Ariel and I argued in an argue, you know in, our, in an article recently, and Andrea and I in another one, I mean enforcement itself is not enough to manage uh, manage migration flows, right? I mean, not even it is sort of the the dream of policymakers that there's some button you can turn on, and and people won't come. We've seen that hasn't worked. And so thinking uh, you know, seriously about protection pathways, about how people have humanitarian protection, asylum being the most important, but also thinking creatively about ref- international refugee resettlement, about protection of internally displaced people, um, about other mechanisms to provide protection to people who are fleeing from danger, and thinking of legal pathways, including labor pathways and family unification, really matters. Um, and then ultimately thinking about the reasons that why people leave their countries, right? And, and how to make the kind of investments in rule of law and governance and development and job creation in mitigating uh, climate, the effects of climate change and of climate events. You know, all of those things matter. Um, and I would throw into that last one of investments, the part that Ariel just talked about, also making sure that those who are returned or return voluntarily to their countries become fully part of the labor market again, become part of, of, of the societies where they live and contribute to that development because there's a lot of human capital that is not taken advantage of often in these cases. So um, these are, some of these are long-term challenges. A lot of the development governance questions are long-term challenges, obviously. Others are, are short-term challenges, right? I mean, how you do effective but also accountable enforcement, right? Um, professional enforcement, how you create legal pathways for people to, to be able to travel among countries um, certainly to the United States, which is a huge issue where maybe you want to go, but also to Mexico and Canada, Costa Rica, other countries that are destinations, and how you create these protection pathways. I mean, all sorts of protection mechanisms, including asylum, which is sort of the minimum necessary, but also thinking creatively about a layered approach of of ways of of dealing with people's protection needs. Um, so, and hopefully in hope that some people, perhaps don't even have to leave their countries, right? That there may be ways of protecting their country, but certainly giving them the option if they have to leave to to have a pathway to protection. With that, let's go to our panel. Um, And we are um, really pleased to have three amazing people with us. Um, Ana Saiz Valenzuela is the general director of Sin Fronteras, one of the most important organizations in Mexico working on migration issues and one of the most important voices in Mexico working on these issues. Um, Ana has a long career working in both migration issues and election issues, actually, and equity issues around, around uh Mexican democracy. Um, she was an advisor to the president of the um, the the president, counselor president of the Federal Electoral Institute, has been involved in a number of other efforts um, around both clean elections and, and around migration. Um, and great to have her with us here today. Um, Jorge Berasa, um, and my iPad has just frozen. But fortunately, Jorge, I know you, so Jorge, um, I think I, you know, I'll, I'll introduce you on what I know, Jorge, which is pretty good. You, you, you are, I believe, it, if I'm correct, you're actually an anthropologist originally from Costa Rica. Yes, you are. You're an anthropologist and an industrial engineer, which is a unique combination. Um, most importantly, for our discussion today, he is the chief of mission for El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras for the International Organization for Migration, for the IOM, which does great work in in Central America um, and in Mexico as well. Um, but uh, but Jorge really has been deeply involved in in a lot of the processes around migration in the region and looking at what are the opportunities to do things differently. And he was for a long time, the coordinator of the technical secretariat for the regional conference on migration, um, the RCM or the Puebla process and um, among other things that he's done. Um, and Karen said Nunez, Karen, we're very glad to have you with us. Um, she's the coordinator of Conomidades, which is a, a fabulous organization that works on, is the National Commission to Support Migrants Return with Disabilities. Um, she has been the coordinator since 2012, um, and she has actually a degree in business administration as well. So great uh, great to have all three of you. And let's go, just since we started with Mexico, um, let's go with Ana Saiz first. and seven or eight minutes, you know, if you can tell us a little bit about your perspective, what you see happening in Mexico, and then we'll go to Jorge and then we'll go to the Karen. Um, And then we're going to go to your questions and answers. By the way, Gustavo Moara, good to have you with us. I saw you ask a question. We'll get to the questions here in a minute once the panel has a chance to speak. Um, And you can speak in English or Spanish, it's up to you. So, this is a bilingual panel. So, Ana Saiz, bienvenida y adelante.
3: Gracias. Thank you, Andrew, for uh, this opportunity. Thanks to the Migration Policy Institute for considering Sin Fronteras today. Congratulations to to yourself, to Ariel, to Andrea, to Luis and Jessica for this timely report. Uh, I think this document gives a great regional overview to the current state of institutional capacity for managing migration. We have to consider the the complexity of these tasks. Capacities for managing migrations are not easy for any country. to integrate national security, globalization, macroeconomics, nationalism with individual decision makings that many times are linked, not only to seek for a better life, for a better educational opportunities or jobs, we have to consider that many persons need better medical treatments, sometimes even to survive better protection, even to deal with uh, life-threatening situations. What is uh, like to deal with the institutions you very accurately describe in the report as a migrant, as a refugee, or as an NGO, it's very complicated and very confusing. We don't have clear legal pathways. We don't have clear authorities responsible of, 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 of it. These, uh, uh, these issues that intersect all the time, And I'm going to put some very specific um, examples to illustrate this. For example, we hear all the time that we want a safe, regular and orderly migration. But for example, for a family of maybe four members, it costs around $1,000 to have a regular document in Mexico. That is not affordable for for many families, or for example, even in Comar where these um, refugees uh, 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 requests are free to process, the backlog is sometimes very very uh, uh, high. So the cases just keep um, keep uh, keep being are very very long for for people and that is not sustainable and also we have this legal um, legal let's say it's 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 very it's not congruent because people that ask for asylum in one entity of the country is not able to move around and moving around implies that they lo- lose their, 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 their procedure. So this means a lot of work for coma. Just one article in the law that have this, um, this, or for example, consider that you also have this uh, disposition that uh, in the legislation for migration If you have an opportunity to work in Mexico, you have to take it from outside Mexico. So that implies that people have to go out of Mexico, take the job offer and then return to Mexico many times because they were already here. So those are incompatible with these messages of having a regular and orderly and safe migration. And also we have to think about all, all the system that even Comar that has been very highly strengthened with budget or whatever compared to what it used to be. And that is also very accurately reflected in the report. It still is a tiny little institution compared to national to the Instituto Nacional de Migración, which is a huge institution with presence almost in all the country, and also, working in collaboration with the National Guard. I think it's important to understand that now, Mexico is is having 10% of the National Guard in charge of this migratory migratory labor or uh, collaboration with the Institute, which we have this high uh, demand on, on security for the country, which it doesn't justify uh, having them dealing with migration. And it's also important to have in mind uh, the commissioner Garduno professional background that he was in charge of managing prisons. So it, it, it gives the message that it's not protect, protecting with, with the budget, but is uh, detaining and deporting what they have. And people that have access to Comar are still few compared to what is needed. But are few, but are very, very manageable. Let's think on how Colombia is dealing with all the Venezuelans in their territory, that simply they know they have this huge border and they, they decided to have the opportunity have these people legally in the country for at least 10 years. So I think for Mexico it could be more much more manageable that it is uh, those uh, quantities of, of persons arriving to other other countries are uh, as 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 Costa Rica, that is stated also in the report, or as in as in Colombia with this example. So also what we have to, to, to realize is that information is not clear for the people, that we need to take accurate information to people in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, which they don't have access to this kind of information. They are, are really some, sometimes very misguided by, by pro- probably human traffickers or, or whatever, and they really invest great quantities of money in making this uh, this dangerous and probably uh, so complicated journey that will probably uh, not have an, a happy ending. So I think that these regional efforts have to be strengthened, but with a more coherent eff- efforts. I guess that the Biden administration has it clear that you have to go along with the humanitarian needs and with the economic and globally uh, what our societies are demanding. And maybe all these efforts can be really pointing to the right direction. And they have to take into account many complicated stuff. It's not just about circular migration, for jobs, because we have to consider that many young, uh, young persons now at the border are probably trying to reunify with people that are already established in the United States. And we have to consider all these demographic changes that maybe are uh, having a very, very important role in what is happening right now, among our two our, our countries. So it is very complicated and this report, I, I I find it that gives a very, very accurate insight to what is happening in Mexico and the problems that we have for not having a clear an institutional leadership that is according to our constitutional order to have these migration policies Built in a congruent way, and alongside with civil society, with uh, private sector, with uh, with really the, the 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 persons that or local capacities, which also is very important. That is why the uh, Consejo of the Política Migratoria it's so relevant because all these sectors we combine in in this in this uh, body. So I really uh, invite all the persons that are listening to us to to read this report and to have this in mind when trying to understand the complexity of the migration uh, flows right now.
0: Jorge Peraza next. And, and let me actually just call out something that Ana just said also, which is there are a number of models, you know, we, Central America and Mexico tend to look north of the United States to see what to do in terms of migration policy. But in fact, there are exciting things, imperfect things, but exciting things going on in South America and the Caribbean. Um, on migration policy that are also worth looking at and are sometimes more relevant models. So certainly, you know, what Colombia has done recently, what Argentina and Uruguay have done in terms of regional mobility agreements. Um, What we saw, you know, the Ecuadorian president-elect two days ago came out, I believe it was two days ago, recently elected, came out in one of his first comments and said, you know, one of the things we're gonna do is regularize people that are here from Venezuela. I mean, it's just sort of a natural thing. He didn't take it as as a political danger. Um, so there's a lot of things going on in the region that are worth looking at as well, um, in terms of how countries manage migration. Many of them will not apply in Central America or Mexico. Um, they won't necessarily apply in the United States, but some of them will. And certainly, it's always a it's always a good lesson to look across the hemisphere. So Jorge, adelante, Jorge.
4: Thank you, Andrew. First of all, uh, it's a pleasure for me to join this uh, webinar and this. Uh, react to the document that has been presented by Andrea and Ariel, a great, great job they have done. And congratulate uh, MPI for this leadership in the analysis of what the region uh, is facing uh, in terms of uh, migration challenges and responses and the complexity it entitles, as Anna has said, uh, in, in order to be more efficient with my time, I'm still organizing my ideas. So I would like to shift into Spanish, and, and, and then um, I think that it would be easier for me to organize different things I have in mind and would like to react to. So, um, primero, me gustaría uh, reflexionar sobre el tema de effective migration management. You know? ¿Para qué? Es esta, este, esta gestión de la migración efectiva, ¿para qué propósito? Y ahí es donde nos encontramos con la complejidad, que esto lo elaboró Ana, la complejidad de los procesos migratorios que enfrenta Centroamérica. Por un lado, sí, la migración de salida y de los retornos, ¿no? Estas dos caras que está teniendo de manera profunda, con un énfasis increíble, en lo que ya se decía, toda esta respuesta al retorno de migrantes que finalmente son ciudadanos que vuelven a sus lugares de origen y que necesitan una serie de servicios. Segundo, el tema de los procesos, la migración en tránsito, ¿no? que eh, ya se ha dicho, lo decía muy bien Andrea, eh, ex, migrantes extracontinentales, extrarregionales, de múltiples nacionalidades que buscan llegar a los Estados Unidos la mayoría de ellos, a veces a Canadá, eh, pero pasando por uh, no solo situaciones que desde el punto de vista de derechos humanos representan un grande una gran uh, vulnerabilidad. Conocemos las regiones en Panamá, en Costa Rica, por, lo de, por las cuales deben transitar a esas personas, pero también desde el punto de vista eh, eh, de las capacidades de gestión y de respuesta de las instituciones con una debilidad eh, 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 financiera. Y aquí quiero enfatizar que si bien algunos colegas han dicho, bueno, históricamente esto hay, hay muchas de las cosas que estamos viendo no son nuevas, es cierto, pero sumemos en este contexto actual la pandemia, que sí está influyendo mucho, es un elemento que está marcando eh, la, eh, la gestión migratoria de manera profunda, Y esto sí si no es nuevo, pero la recurrencia de los uh, eh, problemas asociados a como los huracanes que enfrentó Centroamérica recientemente y lo que ello implica. Hoy se anunciaba, por ejemplo, eh, de, que después de que el centro de recepción de migrantes En San Pedro Sula quedó totalmente devastado. Después de Eta y Ota, empezaban a recibir los primeros migrantes retornados. Y finalmente, esto en menor medida, no voy a enfatizar tanto los países centroamericanos como sí lugares de destino. Es cierto que tal vez en esto no se enfatiza tanto, pero justo ayer estábamos discutiendo, por ejemplo, el hecho de que lugares en El Salvador son lugares, eh, que Salvador siempre lo vemos como un lugar de origen de la migración También tiene eh, migración de Honduras, de Nicaragua, que se instala y es parte del aparato económico y de las respuestas de eh, desarrollo del país. Esto, cuando lo miramos, esa complejidad, cuando la miramos En, la, en lo que debe ser la respuesta institucional para atender estos procesos migratorios es cuando nos perdemos. Porque, claro, se crearon instituciones con un punto de vista de seguridad, como las Direcciones Generales de Migración. Hoy la mayoría han migrado a ser institutos, de, de, por lo menos en el caso de Honduras, en el caso de Guatemala, donde se le asignan funciones para las cuales no fueron creados. En el caso de Guatemala es muy preciso, ¿no?, en la nueva ley se ha creado que también ellos deben gestionar la migración de retorno. Eh, eh, la migración de retorno en otros países, y ya lo decía Ariel, está asociado a cuerpos más colegiados como son con migrante, con amigua, pero que todavía este, están en procesos evolutivos, diría yo, ¿no? porque eh, han tenido sus debilidades institucionales, temas de recursos, Además, entender su función porque la ley no ha sido muy clara en estos, en estos esquemas. Y además, eh, y, y el caso de, de Honduras, yo siempre lo, lo pongo ejemplar en el sentido de que La única manera en que Honduras ha podido acompañar estas respuestas al tema migratorio es a partir de la creación de una fuerza tarea liderada por la primera dama, que también uno puede decir esto no me corresponde a la institucionalidad que existe, pero que es fue la manera de atender esta complejidad. Y a la complejidad quiero agregarle dos, tres factores. Uno. El, los perfiles que se sí han venido cambiando, se ha hablado del tema de niñez migrante acompañada, no acompañada, las respuestas para atender a estos temas implica otras instituciones que no son tradicionalmente no la Dirección General de Migración o el Instituto Guatemalteco de Migración o las cancillerías que también tienen un rol, sino que aquí ya tenemos instituciones que velan por el, los derechos humanos de la niñez, tienen que velar, son tutoras en, en una serie de respuestas. Luego, cuando hablamos, por ejemplo, que se planteaba el tema de la protección, de la protección de migrantes en situación de vulnerabilidad, está muy claro el, el camino para el tema de, eh, eh, cuando se identifica la protección internacional, pero el esquema de violencias en Centroamérica es tan complejo que hay, ha implicado no solo revisar eh, lo, el alcance de la convención que existe para el tema de refugio y asilo, sino ver también cuáles otros mecanismos se pueden aplicar. Ustedes saben que por mucho tiempo ha estado el tema de la violencia por las maras, pero también está el tema de violencia intrafamiliar muy fuerte, Y, y por ejemplo, en el marco de la pandemia hemos visto que ha sido uno de los grandes desafíos también. Así que este los esquemas de protección han tenido que reverse, re, re, eh, reconfigurarse porque no corresponden a lo que fue para lo que cre- se crearon originalmente, ¿no? En el marco de la cumbia. Desde esa perspectiva, por supuesto, uno entiende que hay eh, unas funciones importantes eh, que, que, que uno es, la respuesta en el tema migratorio tiene que ser integrado por diferentes entidades de gobierno, que tienen que ponerse de acuerdo, porque a veces, muchas veces, diría yo, no se ponen de acuerdo. En las visiones eh, todavía hay una prevalencia, hay un conflicto entre este enfoque de la migración desde el punto de vista de seguridad, el, el enfoque desde el punto de vista de protección de derechos humanos, el enfoque que se debe y que, y que está muy perdido todavía desde mi perspectiva en el análisis es la migración como una herramienta también para el desarrollo de nuestros países. Aquí se incluye el tema de migración laboral, se puede incluir esas potencialidades que tiene la migración en nuestra región. Eh, final, y con esto concluyo, esto nos devuelve y hemos estado haciendo importantes análisis también de la mano con diferentes instituciones, el tema de la gobernanza, de la migración como un fin. Yo creo que tenemos que, eh, cuando hablemos de uh, Migration Management, salirnos de los esquemas tradicionales, dar este brinco a una respuesta más integral, más compleja, pero creo que puede ser más efectiva al final y a la que hay que invertir y apostarle. Sería mis, mis intervenciones hasta ahora. It was a pleasure. I think it was efficient with the time, so that was- the Very problem. good. <laughs> Excellent,
0: concise and to the point. Thank you. Um, And, and very good. And, and I think the point you make, Jorge, about not thinking of this just as reactive policy, to to flows that are just happening, but also thinking prospectively about what countries wanna get out of migration. I mean, whether or not they can always choose, right? I mean, because sometimes you start with the the arrivals that come, but also figuring out how that is not just management, but it actually is part of labor market development, it's part of education policy, it's part of human capital, you know, and then beyond that, what else do you wanna do, right? I mean, what else do you wanna do with migration Costa Rica has, of course, done this in attracting investment and tourism and, you know, people to retire and so on. Mexico has recurrent conversations about high-tech, for example, as a, a growing high-tech industry, but it has never really come to fruition in, in new kinds of visas, which could try and attract some of those those high skilled, uh, innovative talent. So, but those are things, those are debates that should be on the table as well, right? As they should be in the United States. This is migration, it's not just what happens that you respond to it is also what you make of it and how it fits into your economic policy and into the development of the country and the kind of country you want to see in the future. So I think that, that's an excellent place to, to end the conversation because that, that, that conversation is hard to have, even in this country, by the way. I mean, it, we, we often forget that. We often are thinking of migration as a reactive category and not as a, as a prospective category that ties in to who we are as a country and what we want to achieve in terms of our, our economic future. Um, with that, let me turn it to, to Karen Lissette Nunez. We've Got lost it. Karen a moment. Well, okay, well, Karen joins us again. In that case, let's go to a couple questions. Um, the Richard Kuhner, the wonderful and talented director of IMUME, which is also an incredibly important organization in Mexico working on migration issues one of the most respected groups, Sin um, Fronteras, asks what has been the impetus for Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador to intensify enforcement against their own nationals as well as people migrating in the region? Um, uh, how is the the CA4, the Central American Free Transit agreements, that work very well during decades, be um, playing into this? Sochil Castañeda, our good colleague from the University of California, as existen mecanismos de coordinación entre. I'll say this in English so I don't confuse our translators here. It, do, the mechanisms, of, do mechanisms of coordination exist among agencies in the U.S. working with children who travel with uh, alone and? Um, uh and with agencies in the countries of origin um how could we improve the institutional capacity of these agencies ah sonia wolf sonia um in light of limited resources and existing migration enforcement priorities detention deportation what are the possibilities for mexico to expand the processing of asylum claims and support for refugees unhcr is strengthening Comart capacities for example but this assistance may be temporary Um, And then there's an anonymous attendee who asks about the reasons for not including Nicaragua in the overview. I will simply say that we started off originally doing um, the uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala and Mexico. And we ended up uh, after that deciding that we should add Costa Rica and Panama um, but we decided that, that the relationship, the coordination with Nicaragua simply was of a different order, um, was, was quite minimal among these countries. And so we didn't add it. But there are good reasons to add Nicaragua in because there is coordination around migration that happens with neighboring countries. Um, but we did not add it in. And, and uh, you know, it's an oversight or well, it was an intentional oversight, but, uh, but it was a judgment call at the time. Um, Pamela Pinel asks about Honduras does not have uh, agreements or work plans for temporary visas on seasonal work like Guatemala and El Salvador. Uh, Ariel can answer that one. And we'll get back to some of the others here in a minute. Um, uh, oh, who? Uh, Daniela Ruiz says who provides the financial support the Mexican government to ACNUR or vice versa? Okay. Any of you want to answer any of these before Lisa joins us again?
2: uh, Andrew, I can take a stab at uh, a couple of the Central America questions, and Jorge, please uh, add after if if you uh, if you agree or if I misstate something. The first component that I didn't mention in the presentation, but I think is worth pointing out here, is that there's actually some uh, some legal mechanisms and some agreements that do uh, unify the region in ways that 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 should be mentioned. The first one is the the reference to the Central American or the convening of Central America, the CA4 Agreement. That agreement allows migrants from the four countries, including Nicaragua, uh, to be able to travel freely across each other and allows for a unique visa for people from outside of these countries to be able to travel together. Um, to do so uh, now has happened during the pandemic has actually re- resulted in some decreases in mobility at the borders because of COVID testing and others, for example, in Guatemala. Um, it's unclear to me how that will change, but it is a fundamental pillar that these countries share in mobility and allowing transit, transit migration across the board with, for example, only an a, a identification regardless of a visa status. And then there's another component that I didn't mention in my presentation, but it's worthwhile to point out that that is that all the countries in Central America and Mexico as well, as a few others and a few others in <clears throat> in, uh, in South America are actually part and signatories to the Cartagena Declaration. And the Cartagena Declaration together provides an opportunity to provide complementary protection as well, that in some ways is actually broader in the definition, including generalized violence and other cases, for example, in Mexico, that could be a good tool for us to talk about. But at this moment, I think what the focus, I think all of us have pointed one way or another, the focus in collaboration and institutional capacity has been on enforcement, much less so in the other components that we mentioned. So those are things that we should be aware about. Um, and I'll leave it there. Uh, Jorge, if you want to add something else and I see that Karen is back with us.
4: Um, no, well, first of all, I was just going through the questions also to see what, what else I can add. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, um, uh, say that it's indeed very important. Someone said that we should include belief in the analysis. That That's very true, no? Because uh, belief is part of the, Whole uh, um, dynamics in in the region. It's a country of destination of a lot of Salvadorians and also people from Honduras more and more. So uh, it, it is, uh, I think, uh, very good that this is uh, this has been pointed out. Secondly, I wanted to say that um, I, uh, I, right now analyzing the current context that we are facing because. It, it, it is important to to understand that we are shifting, or let's say, the, the the shift of the policy from the United States towards the governments of the northern triangles in terms of how uh, to approach the migration issue, also is is a matter of that deserves a, a, a deeper an, a, a, an analysis in depth because um, one year ago we were just discussing the asylum cooperation agreements and it was mentioned I think. Uh, uh, Aria, you mentioned it. Now, we were discussing the asylum cooperation agreements and how to support governments in terms of their responses and support this sort of, uh, uh, let's say, approach towards migration management. Now, we are, the, the focus is on how to address the root causes of migration, which is, from my perspective, a more proactive, positive approach. But at the same time, this has um, generated a uh, sort of migration dynamics that we are facing right now and we are seeing right now in terms of what what has been discussed in, uh, regarding the southern border of of the United States but not only you know in terms of what will be the dynamics and, the, and, the, the, and how this shift in terms of the policy will have an impact on issues like the caravans you know and, and you're aware that the caravans were also a great issue of debate: How to handle the caravans? How to coordinate? Because of in in and I forgot this. Uh, I remember Andrew you said it right at the beginning how to have a common approach and coordinated approach approach among the different countries involved. So this is also a matter that needs further analysis because in 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 there are many declarations of um interest and willingness to do things but in the end uh, there's a matter of resources there is a matter of real responses and and I have to say that uh, one of the things that always challenges me a lot is the fact that when 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 I'm dealing with my migrants with the let's say if I'm from country X and these migrants from from the X country I want them uh, to be treated pretty well and that their their rights are fully respected. But when I'm a a, a, big country is a destination country or a destination country done, then I tend to forget all the commitments and um, agreements that I have signed in terms of human rights conventions and so on to respect the rights of these people. So there is a double discourse still uh, um, uh, in the analysis of our migration uh, responses, there is a double discourse in terms of the migration, uh, how this, how migrants in the end should be treated. So this is what I wanted to add as part of the analysis
0: in looking at the questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm
4: forgetting something, Sorry,
0: I, I see that- Thank you. Uh, there are a lot <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, Let me go to Karen since she is back with us. We're good to have you back, Karen. But let me put out some questions for all of you to think about before Karen speaks. So you can think about this. Um, Monica Vedea asks about shelters, and if there's a way that the US government, Monica Vedea, one of the eminent scholars of migration in Mexico, um, asks about uh, uh, shelters and any way of getting US-Mexican cooperation in improving the shelters in Mexico. Um, there is a question about local governments and the, the role of local governments in integration policies in the region. There is a question about Mexico's um, uh, capacity to receive expelled migrants from other countries besides Mexico. And there's a question from our board member, Gustavo Muar, also distinguished uh, former undersecretary of, of, of migration in Mexico, population migration religion in Mexico, Gustavo Muer, on how the budget from Comar has evolved between 2019 and 2021, um, which I assume is for Ariel actually, um, or Ana Saiz, so either one of you guys. But before that, let me go to Karen Nunez. And so, um, Lizette, Karen Lizette, adelante.
5: Eh, buenos dias, muchas gracias por, por esta oportunidad que me dan, verdad, de poder compartir con ustedes. Eh, también eh, quería felicitar, verdad, Ariel y, a, y Andrea por el trabajo que han hecho. Creo que es muy importante. Eh, conocerte de, de primera mano, verdad, eh, estas realidades migratorias en estos países, verdad, de Centroamérica, eh, pues es, es muy bueno saber, verdad, que es que se están involucrando de primera mano. Eh, primeramente quería comentarle, verdad, lo que estaban hablando conforme al informe, que la mayoría de los migrantes que están en México y que intentan llegar a Estados Unidos son hondureños. Conocemos muy bien, verdad, que esto ha sido como... Normalmente, ¿verdad? Por varios años que el flujo migratorio en Honduras, pues es muy alto y cada vez eh, de una u otra manera, pues eh, va en incremento la población que que está en movilidad. Eh, Pues conocemos muy bien, eh, creo que todos nosotros, cuáles son las causas eh, que por qué estas personas migran. Eh, algo que yo siempre eh, he tomado en cuenta y que siempre he dicho es que para conocer estas realidades es necesario conocer las necesidades, las problemáticas de estas poblaciones y así poder entender un poco más eh, por qué se van. Conocer sus necesidades y también esto es un punto fundamental para poder eh, buscar alternativas de respuesta, buscar oportunidades, enfocar programas como tal, ¿verdad? Eh, pero en base a las necesidades reales y con respuestas integrales. Creo que de una u otra manera eh, hablábamos de la responsabilidad compartida, que, que es un término que a mí me gusta mucho. Y creo que si realmente nosotros lo pusiéramos en contexto y lo pusiéramos eh, en la práctica, pues realmente veríamos un cambio en el tema migratorio. Lamentablemente en nuestros países eh, puedo decir que hay demasiado protagonismo Eh, falta esa parte ¿verdad? de entrelazar eh, el trabajo de los organismos internacionales, de las ONGs, del gobierno para realmente eh, buscar y dar respuestas integrales a la población migrante. Hablábamos que sí, falta mucho verdad, la parte del recurso, del recurso financiero. Eh, hay, mucho, hay también una debilidad en la parte del recurso humano que esté sensibilizado y que esté dispuesto a colaborar a esta población. Eh, vemos que existen muchos programas, ¿verdad? Y que de una u otra manera pueden dar una respuesta, pero vemos que esa es la gran limitante que, que nosotros, eh, por ejemplo, aquí en Honduras podemos eh, ver, que es esa es la falta de recursos, la falta de recurso humano sensibilizado para poder atender a esta población y buscar respuestas. Eh, cada país está haciendo lo posible para poder contrarrestar, ¿verdad?, Este tema que eh, también podemos decir que trae mucho dolor desde que la persona sale de su país. En el camino, pues sabemos que no es fácil. Hablaba la compañera en México, ¿verdad? Por ejemplo, de la Comar, que existe, hay todavía muchos retos y que y que para el trabajo que ellos están haciendo es mínimo, digámoslo así, conforme a la demanda o la población que ellos están atendiendo o que se requiere atender. Entonces, esto nos pasa también a nosotros, eh, creo, ¿verdad? A instituciones que trabajamos como sociedad civil en beneficio, ¿verdad?, de, de buscar alternativas para esta población. En mi caso, pues yo trabajo con migrantes retornados con discapacidad física. Eh, lamentablemente son personas que vienen con amputaciones, con lesiones, con enfermedades, pero les, les diré, ¿verdad?, que todavía falta ese, ese enlace. Tenemos nosotros una coordinación con el gobierno en la recepción de los casos, en la remisión de los casos, pero nos falta ese apoyo, ¿verdad?, digámoslo así, para la reintegración de esta población. Y sabemos que de una u otra manera la salud física y la salud mental es muy primordial para estas personas que retornan. Pero el apoyo que nosotros damos, pues podría decirlo que es poco, en base a la población que trabajamos, porque hay mucha población que no se toca, las personas que retornan. Y de una u otra manera, esta falta verdad de trabajo en ellos es lo que nos motiva a ellos a volver a intentar eh, la ruta migratoria, porque también no, no se ha trabajado esa parte de la reintegración Eh, desde un punto integral, eh, tendríamos que hacer una reflexión de los programas existentes por país, creo yo, ¿verdad? Eh, para poder dar una respuesta y decir realmente esto sí, esto no, y también trabajar en conjunto con las instituciones que realmente hacen la labor. Como decía el compañero, ¿verdad? De la OIM, es muy cierto, hay una, hay una doble, eh, doble cara, por decirlo así, en lo que decimos y en lo que hacemos. Creo que sí, eso sí debería ser de mucha reflexión para poder eh, tener una postura eh, en, en qué estamos haciendo en cuanto al retorno, qué estamos haciendo en cuanto a la reintegración de estas personas y cómo podemos trabajar de manera coordinada con México para buscar alternativas, ¿verdad? La cuestión aquí es la, la vida humana de las personas, la dignidad humana, poderla trabajar y poder trabajar con estas personas que retornan. Eh, creo que... que Que eso sería ¿verdad? De, de mi parte, poder exponerte que hay muchas debilidades, hay, hay, pero también está esa parte, ¿verdad? De, de querer trabajar, ese humanismo de poder eh, apoyar a estas personas, porque hay mucho dolor, hay mucho luto, eh, y bueno, estamos para servir. Y... So,
0: let me just thank you, uh, Karen. And let me, let me just, from everything you said, let me just um, uh, point out also how in, in important it is the work that is done by civil society organizations. I mean, we often think of migration management as being a government, you know, something government does. But in fact, much of the work involved in humanitarian protection, involved in, in returns and reintegration, um, involved in taking care of people who are on and oriented people on the migrant route are actually done, is done by civil society groups, right? And the opportunity um, exists for and, and often by international organizations like IOM, UNHCR, which plays such an important role um, in the region as well. Um, you know, and, and how important it is to try and get that virtuous relationship going between civil society, governments, international organizations. Right? That that is. It's not always possible, um, but but in reality, since so much of this work is in fact done at a grassroots level how important it is for, for governments to make those investments, right? And done by international organizations who have feet have on the ground in a way that governments often are not able to. So um, with that, we are out of time, but that is not gonna stop us. Um, if you have to jump off, jump off, but we're gonna take about five, seven more minutes to answer some questions. So I left you all a few questions. You can feel free to grab other questions that have come in as well, besides those that I asked. Um, hopefully you're all reading the Q&A in the chat. And so let me turn it back to the panelists. Um, I'm going to go to each of you for one minute. How's that? And answer whatever you can do. This is like a game show. Whatever you can do in one minute, um, let's answer it. So, Anna Science. A-
3: First of all, I think we have to look at, at the role of local governments. It is very, very interesting how they understand that aside from all these. Uh, huge uh, uh, migration policies among countries. They have the migrants there, so they trying to deal the best way they can. And I can mention Mexico City, which deals very, very well with good legislation and good uh, public policies that do have access uh, migrants and, and refugees. And aside of that, the, the role of civil society is, I mean, there's a lot of experience and I think that the federal government should, ha- should work alongside more with civil society because we do communicate. We understand, for example, as Karen was saying, we know that many people from Honduras that are coming to Mexico, they do have a job in Honduras, for example. But they they need to be protected. They need to have access to justice in cases of uh, domestic violence, of extortions, of of other... The the national institutions have to respond in order for them to decide to stay. It's not only having access to the jobs. And and I think the Biden plans tries to cover this, 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 um, this issue. And also, I think it is important and, and and thank you Andrew for organizing this because it's important that in the United States, know what is happening in Mexico, know the detention centers, know the conditions of, of the shelters, as Monica was asking that need to be addressed. It is very, very important for us to understand us like, like a region, and have assume our responsibilities as the United States as Mexico playing this part on on trying to tra- trying to have a more humane addressing uh, of of migration flows and also attending to uh, asylum seekers. Basically,
0: that was great. And uh, and Jorge, okay, great.
4: Thank you. Uh, some some a final reflection uh, when when we were speaking about the complexity of the migration challenges in the region and. Uh, all that we have seen in the the recent time, the recent months, not only the caravans, what I mentioned already regarding the pandemic, also uh, the the latest developments and so on, uh, and the responses that are required from the different sectors. I fully agree that the NGOs play a major role. However, uh, we see that in certain countries, Government institutions are reluctant to work with those uh, NGOs for several reasons, uh, but they do play a major role. I think that we have to strengthen the coordination of the different NGOs uh, in the different countries. Um, I remember long ago when we had this issue of unaccompanied migrant minors, there, there was huge interest in uh, establishing mechanisms of coordination between the NGOs in the United States and the NGOs in Central America to respond to the needs and uh, protection of children in migration flows. And I think that's for example, an an area that I still think it's very weak. But what I wanted to say is that in order to better understand and address our responses, we have to be uh, evidence these um, uh, oriented. Uh, we need to have a major analysis of data because it, it, uh, already when we are analyzing Central America as a whole, we are all aware that there are, the countries are so different at the same time, and the reasons why people migrate are so different. And even if I go country by country and go to the different regions, I, I do realize that there are so many factors. In the case of El Salvador, such a small country, just to give you an example, we are trying to analyze what the migration is from those places that have historically migrated for many many years after the war in comparison to those places that are now uh, uh, from which we are seeing now migration outflows. and and that's uh, other reasons I and mean, if we want to have a, a, a clear response it, it, those are different reasons or for example now we see a lot of emerging Uh, municipalities that have become in Guatemala and Honduras as uh, places of origin of migrants and uh, those are related to uh, the recent impacts of ETA IOTA so um, it's complex and we should be able to respond based on the data and information we have uh, able to have a a clear uh, comprehensive analysis uh, and coordinate the institutions that need to be involved. It could be, uh, yeah, we have named a lot of them, including NGOs, local governments also play a major role. So that's my final comment. I would like to elaborate a little bit more, but I'm, I'm aware that we're short of time. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Thank you Jorge, much appreciated and great to have you with us today. Um, uh, Karen, algún otro punto que quisieras agregar uh, frente a las,
5: las preguntas que se han hecho. Bueno, solamente ¿verdad? agradecer este espacio y como decía el compañero, pues hay mucho, hay mucho que hablar, pero creo que sí invitarlos también, verdad, las personas que están eh, participando, que puedan leer este informe. Hay mucha información muy valiosa y de, de una u otra manera, pues esto nos va a venir a ayudar a ampliar nuestro nuestro conocimiento, verdad. Eh, del tema migratorio en los países de Centroamérica.
0: Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias Karen. Eh? Um, Ariel, you and then Andrea to, con, para cerrar con broche de oro. I'll, um, be, very,
2: uh, I'll be very brief. Um, in terms of the Comar budget, we, we've seen that Comar has increased their, their or the, the budget for Comar is expected to increase to about ninety-seven million uh, in two thousand twenty-one. This is a significant increase from previous years, where there were about twenty million or forty million. But it's clearly not enough, as I think all of us have suggested in previous parts because of the different flow, but also because compared to the, to the budget from Inami, for example, it still lags behind. Um, and then the general remark I would say is that I, from a, from a reporter, we I, I hope what people take away from it is that we're trying to suggest ways to create a more sustainable, proactive and res, uh, uh, resilient system regionally, even though imperfect, that provides better ways for uh, each country to be involved in the capacity that they can. So we can be, uh, we can continue to, to point out some of the limitations in capacity while begin to design at the same time some ways that we can be tailored in that approach and talk about how the US, Mexico, especially uh, among the bigger capacity governments can provide some assistance for them as well. So I'll leave it there and I'll uh, pass it over to Andrea.
1: Thank you Andrea and thank you Ariel. I think to just wrap up, I would stress that we are making a point that whatever efforts governments take to strengthen the capacity, will not only benefits migrants and refugees themselves, but it will also benefit their local resident communities, as well as their own nationals, as so least the case of Mexico with Mexican returnees. But to do so, there is a real need of coordination and robust mechanisms. I think in Mexico, you know, the policy vacuum that we're seeing is, um, is quite evident that is having an impact on local communities. Uh, we'll be having a, a, a report, a forthcoming report, where we'll be looking more uh, in-depth at the reintegration challenges, so please stay tuned in MPI for further publications. And I would like to just, you know, take this opportunity to thank personally Paulina Orlenas, Maria Jesus Mora, and Jordi Amaral, who provided uh, essential research support for our publication. And very brief, I will also highlight that we have six uh, legal frameworks or working papers in the website that clearly outline the, the structures when it comes to legal and institutions that oversee migration management of, in each of the countries that we touch. So please visit our website and we hope you enjoy the event.
0: Thank you. And and uh, let me just conclude by again, thanking uh, all of our panelists for joining us. We really appreciate that. And, um, Congratulations to Andrea and Ariel, to Luis Argueta, our, our dear friend and colleague. Uh, Jessica Bolter, look out for a, a new brief from her as well, or a new report from her looking at uh, African migration in the hemisphere as well, coming soon, as well as the report on Mexico as a destination country coming out from Andrea and Ariel and Paulina. Um, great to have you with us. I can I only stress what, what Ariel said a minute ago, which is really the importance of creating resilient systems that that provide for orderly, safe, predictable migration across the region in ways that treat people with dignity. This is obviously something that all countries should be involved in doing together. It's something that requires governments, but it also requires civil society and international organizations and expertise in the academy. Um, This is a, a job that we are all in. Thank you for this very diverse group of people who showed up for the conversation today who represent all of these different stakeholders, we appreciate you being here. Um, you represent the people who who are part of this conversation, have to be part of this conversation, and have to be part of the solution. And thanks again to BTI and DHS uh, for the support on this, and to all of our partners that we we're working with on this effort, and to all of you who are who are trying to do your part for for really creating this this sustainable, resilient system um, that that creates a regional uh, migration pathways for everyone.